very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world, and our welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Bambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's interview, the full interview, and all of our material, you know what to do by now. Go to our subscribe button on VeritasRadio.com click on it and you will receive your login immediately. Don't wait any longer. Give yourself the gift of truth. And tonight we discuss near-death experiences with our special guest, Daniel Brinkley, whose near-death experience is perhaps the world's most well-known near-death experience. Officially dead for over 28 minutes, he has written three best-selling books about his experiences He has had more than one near-death experience. It was Daniel's first near-death experience that brought the term NDEs, and near-death experiences, into the mainstream consciousness. It's coming up right now on Veritas. Daniel Brinkley is the best-selling author of The Secrets of the Light, Saved by the Light, and At Peace in the Light. He is loved and respected worldwide for his inspirational lectures on the near-death experience, palliative and hospice care, complementary and alternative healing practices, and self-awareness. Since 1977, Daniel has worked diligently looking for the best way to integrate conventional and complementary medicine. Having survived numerous brushes with death since 1975, Daniel is an expert in the dying process. He was struck twice by lightning and has since survived heart failure open-heart surgery, ruptured subdural hematomas, brain surgery, and a massive grand mal seizure. That first lightning strike radically changed his life. Daniel became a hospice and nursing home volunteer. For almost 40 years of volunteer service, he has been at the bedside of hundreds of people at the point of death and more than 2,000 during their final days, acquiring more than 16,000 hours of service. And to learn more about Daniel Brinkley and his work, Visit his website at Danion.com. That's D-A-N-N-I-O-N.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Las Vegas, Nevada, I would like to introduce, for the first time on Veritas, Danion Brinkley. Hello, Danion, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? Hey, Mel, I'm fine, and thank you for having me. I could just hang up now after you read all that stuff, Mel. <laughs> well, Danion, as we always do on this radio program, and I know... Most of our audience know, knows who you are, but for those who do not know, we'd like to start from the beginning. How does your story begin? 
Well, it began in 1950 when I was born. And I grew up in the Deep South, you know, and everybody goes to hell where I came from. And I was, grew up as a tough guy, Mel. You know, I'm a big man. And uh, I thought that the way you got your way was you hit it in the face as hard as you could first. And then you began to discuss whatever the issues were. So I played sports and uh, went into the Marine Corps. And and it was just a, that, basic, that basic personality of jackass. And then... Uh, one afternoon in September, I was struck by lightning. And I went from a guy who had absolutely no spiritual inclination because I didn't buy fundamentalist Christianity. I thought it was absurd when I was a kid. And I didn't buy it, so I rejected all that stuff. I couldn't be a New Age hippie because I, I didn't understand flower power. I understood destruction. And so... Or... uh conquest. And so I never had any idea of, and Raymond Moody's legendary book had not been published called Life After Life. And I was talking on the telephone and lightning hit the telephone. It came down the phone line. It hit, went through the telephone and melted it in my hands. And it welded the nails of the heels of my shoes as it went down my spine. I had a pair of bass weegins on, and that means that the heels are nailed into the shoe. Well, it, the lightning passed through me into the nails in the heels of the shoes, and they happened to be over nails in the floor and grounded me. And it, when you stop to think of how much electricity must have been passing through my body to weld nails, you know, the aftermath of that is easy to understand. I was dead for 28 minutes. I was completely paralyzed for six days, partially paralyzed for seven months, and it took me two years to learn to walk and feed myself. And in the course of that, I had what is now known as the legendary near-death experience. I became famous, Mel, because a guy named Dr. Raymond Moody was a medical student at the hospital they brought me to, a medical student going to med school. And his book came out in 75, and I met him in late 76 because I was just getting up. And I spent the next 20 years with Raymond, pushing and supporting the toilet, uh, pushing and supporting uh, the near-death experience, you know, and being at the very beginning and the birth of this movement, the very beginning and the very birth of it. And so that's just who I am. And I've been a hospice volunteer because there is a part in the pa in the near-death experience called the panoramic life review that changes everybody's life forever, or it doesn't. And that's how you can tell uh, a near-death experience when people have them. Because as a coined phrase, Mel, everybody can say near-death experience and a certain spiritual concept becomes viable in our society because Raymond gave this experience the name, the near-death experience. So people have a cover and a cloak that they can describe experiences, and it becomes acceptable psychology, and people don't immediately think that they're crazy. You were clinically, and that's it. You were clinically dead for 28 minutes, so it's, it's difficult to comprehend how you were able to come back. But how long did it really feel 
while you were dead and roaming heaven or the spirit world, going through life review and, and everything else? Probably 27 years. I so mean, time... I went, through, I went through from my birth. I mean, I lifted out of my body. I wasn't paralyzed. I was paralyzed. I was on fire, like burning and drinking battery acid. I couldn't move. I did not know what happened to me. Then all of a sudden, I lift up out of my body. I have no framework. But wherever I was, Mel, was better off than where I had just left. You know, my mindset was, I am free of that body, and I'm not in pain. And because I was blind, the ball of fire that came through the room when the lightning came, it burnt my eyes, and I had to wear welder's glasses for probably two years because my eyes couldn't take the light. So I was blind, but when I lifted out of my body, I could see. So then it was the ambulance ride, and uh, the last thing I heard was, he's gone, he's gone, and that was in the ambulance with the paramedics. And the next thing is I'm moving down this tunnel. And this tunnel's moving whether I'm moving or not, and I come into this place of the most beautiful, serene, silver blue light. Okay, and a sense of comfort. The, uh, it's hard to describe it in in human emotional terms, but it's uh, it's knowing you know this place where you are, and you're safe there. But it also knows you. You know, you're a part of it, and it is a part of you. And both of those are conscious patterns. I'm obsessive compulsive male. And after three of these experiences, over a 22-year period, I analyze every component of them. So if I over-analyze, it's just my basic personality. So you come into this place, and once you're there, I never had anyone that I knew come to see me. But I know, based on talking to not hundreds but thousands of people, and more, probably about 700 who's had this experience. They're all met by relatives and friends. I feel like that didn't happen to me, Mel, because if it would have happened to me, then I probably would not have wanted to come back because I didn't want to come back from the very beginning. But most people meet their relatives and their friends. That did not happen to me. But this being, I saw this being, and this is a funny uh, compulsion of mine, but... When I was in this place, this blue, silvery place, and at, and being at peace, I decided to become aware of Daniel, not the person and the sensing and all of that, but just who I was as an ego. Okay, because the last point of ego I remember was when they said he's gone. Okay, now I've come through the tunnel, I've come to this place of light, I'm safe, I'm at peace, and I'm left-handed, but I decided to look down at my right hand. Now, for me, I would normally, in any other level of time, look at my left hand. So I looked at my right hand, and I didn't have a right hand when I first looked down. And the right hand did not appear for probably a fraction of a second, and it formed out of the mist, just like the hand that I have in front of me now. And I looked at it, and my fingers seemed like they were longer, But I looked at it and saw I had presence other than spiritually or or mentally. 
And then I saw a movement or a being coming toward me. And I can remember when I took my consciousness or focus away from my hand, it became back into the mist, into this blue silvery mist. And then this being of light came to me. And this being, and people say angels and God and Buddha and Muhammad and Allah, they have all these names for this being. But I sincerely believe that this being is your higher consciousness. It's really you, meaning you. Because after the second near-death experience, some 13 years after the lightning, I had been through enough to, when I was facing open-heart surgery, which I watched the open-heart surgery, until they took my heart out and stopped it. Then I'm back down the tunnel. And I'm paying attention to this being because the process is the same, and I've had 13 years to think about it. And so watching it, I went to a different place the second time than I went the first time, but I went through the same steps to get there. And these are common, this is probably 60% between 55 and 65% or 63% of the people who have these near-death experiences. So once I met this being, it was like being in the presence of a, a good friend who knew you for all that you are and that it was safe and you didn't have to have any big secrets or anything like that. And then all of a sudden, I saw my whole life pass before me in a 360-degree panoramic life view, a hologram of my birth. I mean, literally everything that was in the room when they pulled me out of my mom. I always used to say I knew how many hairs was in the nose of the doctor who pulled me from my mother because it's that acute. We are great, powerful, and mighty spiritual beings, Mel. And we have reduced ourselves to think ourselves in the ego of a human being because we've begun to realize that our life as a human is to gratify and to preserve. We're either trying to protect ourselves or preserve or gratify ourselves as a psychology, but that's not really who we are. So when you see your whole life pass before you, you watch it from a first-person point of view. Then at the same time, you watch it from a second-person point of view as though you were your own best friend. You know, seeing some of the smartest things you've done and some of the stupidest things you've done, and you're forming an opinion about what you're naturally seeing. Then you literally will become every person that you encounter. And you will feel the direct results of your interaction between you and that person. You become them. Well, right there, Mel, was the point that changed me forever. Because when I realized I was the people I was interacting with, all the damage, the emotional pain and anger and and anxiety because of my personality that I had created in so many people. It was unbelievable what a jackass Whew, I was. <clears throat> so when I realized that, and I became every person, I realized we're all one. There are certain byproducts of that psychology. We're all one. There's a common essence that flows through us all, and nothing has changed that since 1975. And there's a common essence between us, and this is... We this is a, a, not a quite a reality that we've created to experiment spiritually in human form in, and then at the end of that life review, there comes this one simple question: 
if the divine, or what you believe to be divine, or if God could not come today, and God sent you, in the life you just reviewed, what difference did you and God make? I became a hospice volunteer. I quit being an asshole. And I became a hospice volunteer because I knew what was next. And I understood what people were going through because I had been in pain for years. I'm still in pain for years. And I understood everything they've gone through. Catastrophic illness. Uh, in uh, Anxiety of not being able to walk and the pain of being paralyzed and the emotional anxiety and all the things that people go through as they face what we call death. So I figured that if God couldn't come today and he sent me, then the best place I could be was helping them gateway from this world to the next. And I created the Twilight Brigade after one of the largest end-of-life care volunteer programs for dying veterans in American history. And I have 6,000 people in 22 states who die with veterans because I am one. And uh, they are an underserved population because most people don't understand what a, a veteran, especially combat, absolutely, has gone through in defense of them. Like, to, you know, we go back to war in Syria today. We are going back to war. We have to overthrow Syria to break Iran, the Middle Eastern concept of what was called Greater Syria, and it's probably from the 900s. The mindset's probably from 900 after the Common Era. Now you and you, so that's what, who I am. One thing is that uh, after you went through all of this, you started looking at life. Even when we we were talking offline before starting, you have this humor that overtook you. Even after your first incident, you even said. I remember looking down at myself and thinking, I always thought it was better looking than that. That's what I did. Yeah. That's honesty. You know, when people go and tell these stories, I am not, uh, I am not, um, let's see how, what would be a term? I'm not new age. I mean, I'm a 64-year-old guy born in South Carolina who's been through these experiences and has been there since the beginning. I, I remember the early days. You know, I was just re-watching something that Raymond and I did in 1991 about with Joan Rivers. And it was on uh, on YouTube. And it was a show she had. And, uh, Raymond and I were experimenting on the centers, cre trying to create the best possible way to recreate what was over there. We had what was called the John Dee's Memorial Theater of the Mind. And... Uh, Joan had all of us, because near-death experiences, about every two years we come back in the style. I can watch the cycles of when people get interested in death, the death of a great person, or uh, the transition of a person, and then people start looking, or the loss of a relative, or, you know, or especially the losing of a child. It brings us back, and it was a show then, probably 91, and... uh Raymond and I were working on this. I had no books. Raymond had written a couple, but we were working on it. And Joan Rivers had an out-of-body experience. And to watch the the person on that on that tape, Mel, as opposed to the person that we commonly think of as Joan Rivers, the the value is completely different. It's a whole other person. She's crying, and 
you know, she's describing her experience of going on the the bed, the legendary part of the, the clinic, the part of the centers, and watching herself and then seeing her husband who had committed suicide and then going to her daughter's house and seeing her daughter in the shower and seeing what she had laid out on the bed. And then I said, well, call her, because this all started out as a challenge. She was being Joan Rivers. And I I said, well, you need to just come down and experience it. You know, you can talk about it, but come experience it. So she made it a two-part show, and she came down. And I said, well, call her. So on the camera, she's calling her daughter and uh, describing, she said, Melissa, where were you? Was she under, was she, I don't mean to jump in, but was she under hypnosis when she was saying all of this? Nope. It's in the, it's in Say by the Light. It was the final part of the vision, the centers, this place that I was supposed to bring together and put into place at a certain time in history. They always said, uh, if people read chapter five in Say by the Light, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's on the internet. I miss some of the dates because nothing was carved in stone, but 98% of everything I said has happened. And it was from part of the experience. Once I had the the tunnel and I had a life review, then this being, which is my higher self, took me to a place that I call Crystal Cities, Mel, because it was a city built of light. You could tell that it had structure like plexiglass blocks, but it was built of light. And when I went there, I came into this most beautiful place, and it felt like a library, you know. And I don't know exactly why, but it felt that way. And then these 13 beings, these 12 beings appeared. I mean, and then there was a 13th being that appeared to the upper right, like it was above them. And it would designate a being. And that being would begin to resonate and vibrate and expand outward with such magnificence, glory, honor, integrity, you know, those kinds of words of watching this. And all I could see was that one being. And then it sent this box, what a, like a computer, like a laptop computer. And as it came to me, I began to be a part of what was on the computer, like watching YouTube. I became a part of the piece. I could smell smells, and I could I could sense heat and cold where I was not aware of any of that when uh, when I was not in one of those boxes. And this happened to be probable future possibilities. I, this I, I talk, this is a conversation I had with Raymond in 1977. In 1993, we were losing the battle. Science had become smart enough, Mel, to figure out oxygen brain deprivation and temporal lobe seizures and frontal lobe seizures and a bunch of psychiatrists and everyone who believes that there's a dead universe. You know, you have two mindsets. You either live in a dead universe, which is what all science is based on, and then all you are, all you are is a bunch of chemical reactions and compounds uh, merging and enzyme reactions. There's no consciousness outside the brain. Well, anybody thinks that is stupid. I mean, that's the stupidest concept. It's good for scientific method and looking at compounds and material and chemical reactions, but it has nothing to do with the identity of a spiritual being. Nothing. And so we were losing the battle. You know, they, they Raymond was a philosopher and a forensic psychiatrist. 
You know, most people, all of Raymond's friends were dead male, Socrates and Plato. And he loved to study the criminal mind. He was a forensic psychiatrist, probably in some some uh, place for the criminally insane. And he was not able to deal with the public. You know, there were good, good arguments. And a lot of people who thought they had near-death experiences were describing the same symptomatic nature of hallucination and uh, uh, certain kinds of shock and temporal lobe seizures and uh, anesthesia reactions, uh, drug overdoses. And so they could just put it all in near-death experience. So I decided that I would write a book about, first, more importantly, was to stand up for those people because most people who've had this experience now, they're afraid to really talk about it. And then they're only telling the story, waiting for someone to react to it to see if they believe them or not so that they could open up their heart. Because I saw those people before it was famous to be dead. I saw all those little people, and not little people, but people from mechanics and guys who drove trucks to housewives telling their story. And somebody had to defend them. And if anybody thinks I care whether they think I had a near-death experience or not, they're funny. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. Because I had it before it had a name, and I went through two more after that over a 22-year period. Now, how did that and happen? I, you, you had a second lightning strike, is that correct? Yeah, because, you know, uh, I don't catch on as fast as most other people now. <laughs> how did that <laughs> happen? Said, Listen. Well, I was talking on the telephone. I never went back in the room where the lightning struck me. I mean, I, I never went back in there. I might have gone in the broad daylight, the sunlight to get something. But that room, once we took the carpet up to see all those spidering across the floor, that room um, never was happy for me. So I had moved, and I was talking on the telephone in the bedroom when lightning, this is on an afternoon, when lightning hit the phone, it slammed me against the wall and then slammed me against the bedroom window frame. You know, you, you put a window in a place, and I knocked the whole frame out into the yard. This is the second and I was time? Out about, yeah, this is three years later. Three years later. Another house, same bedroom, talking on the phone. Same stuff. It's like getting my attention. Hey, Daniel, you're slipping. So I got it then. I didn't have a... It took me about a month. I was out for probably about... I was unconscious for about 45 or 50 seconds, maybe a, more, a little over a minute. But I was dazed for about 45 minutes to an hour because I'm cognizant. After the first experience, I'm cognizant of paying attention to where I am. When you're not afraid of dying now, and you you know in comfort, not out of faith, but out of knowing what's next and how the world really works as opposed to how we think it works, you have a different viewpoint. So the second one, I, I, I realized that I was getting angry. I was getting angry because of hypocrisy. I see such hypocrisy, especially in healthcare. And because I'm a hospice volunteer for, I have 32,000 hours. I was listening to the the bio. It says 16. 32 Yeah, I have 32,000 hours at the bedside. Wow. I said the bedside. 
So I study this thing we call death. I mean, it's really like the only thing other than Catherine that interests me. So that's my wife, but that interests me, and I study it. I mean, it's like a, an adventure to me, but it doesn't have all that those places that people attach to it when they think of death. So I'm a funny kind of guy. So going back to the first experience, I, something I want to be clear about. How did you feel? Did you, did you have feelings? Did you feel when they said he's gone? You know, if it happened to me, I would be thinking of my, my offspring, my wife, my loved ones, leaving them behind. Did you feel any kind of pain when they said he's gone and the fact that you may not be able to see them again the way in the physical world, I mean? No. It shows you what a jackass I was. Hmm. I mean, it's a that's a good psychology. I mean, that's a good perspective, Mel. Because most people, most people are that way. But I was too self-centered. My mindset was it was all about me. There's no question about it. That was your holy trinity. That me, myself, yeah. and me. And the rest of you could kiss my... And that was it. That's how I framed everything. I dealt with it in eight seconds or less. You know, we didn't contemplate. And, you know, it was just that that was the personality. It's all about me. Where most people, when you uh, are in that state of acclimating, that's all they're thinking about. You're not thinking about yourself. Because once you separate from that body, once you separate from it, it's such a relief because you've been lugging it around for ever how many years you've been lugging it around, and most of us lug it around. It's like a big, you know, if you look at the physical body, it's just a big water bag, and you're basically a water treatment plant. You're mostly water with a few chemicals, and you have to continuously put water in there, and if you lose 12% of the water that's in your body, then you uh, automatically go into cardiac arrest. So if you look at the physical body from a reality standpoint, it's just a big water bag. And you carry it around. I always think of it like a deep-sea diver. You know, you put on those weights, like a salvage, a Navy yeah. salvage diver. You put on that big heavy helmet. You put on those weights so you can walk on the bottom. And it's an outfit. It's just like that. So once you get out of it, most people are consciousness about their loved ones and who's going to be okay. And they're never really worried about exactly where they are, you know, because it's natural. It's natural. I guess I'm referring to leaving those behind who depend on you and how you feel about that. Okay, well, how do you feel about it is you are conscious of it. You are conscious of it. I think families should get together and have that conversation when people are in their 60s and 70s. How do you deal with it? What are you going to do? Because what happens in doing that, Mel, is people find ways to forgive each other and get past petty little grievances because there may be a time when if you haven't resolved those things between you and them, then the opportunity may disappear and you don't have it. So it's just as important for those of us who stay behind 
to resolve and think the things that you're thinking, which is what you will be thinking in the beginning when you lift out of your body. And that's a very good point that you brought uh, throughout the book, that you coming from the South, Bible Belt, hardly a very, very small percentage of the people discuss death. It's not until people die that they start talking about it. Why is that? Or after. Why? Because right. religions, institutions, and governments have created a mindset for control, guilty of the original sin. Do you know how insane that sounds? To go to the jungles, go into the jungles where Christianity never got there, and tell those people that they are guilty of what somebody did in the desert 6,000 years ago, what Adam and Eve was doing in the desert, and that they were guilty of that, and that God had sent a Redeemer for that of the, for to be forgiveness of their sins, and they're waiting for that God to come back because they failed to move on past being guilty of sin because the value of the temptation of the devil was greater in the minds of the people who accepted redemption from a Savior. That that value of the redemption of a Savior and their knowledge of that could not supersede their ability to be tempted by an opposite or an antagonistic being. That's crazy. That doesn't make sense in any normally functioning reality. And so when I I was like 14 years old, and I was listening to the earth being 6,000 years old, and I'm listening to this stuff, I'd already been to an exhibit at the Charleston Museum on uh, Neopaleolithic period and Paleolithic periods. That's 168 million years of Earth history. They had a damn dinosaur, Mel. So I got to listen to some guy because I used to have to go to the uh, Baptist RAs, Royal Ambassadors, and they had weekends for wayward boys. And kids like me were always in fighting and disturbing the class and sitting at the principal's office. I spent a lot of time at the RA weekend camps. <laughs> and they would grind this stuff into you. And i just laugh. I'm like 12 or 13 years old. I mean, who who listens to that? And as I grew, you know, it became more absurd. You know, there's no reason for anyone to sin based on the fact that they accept that that a God or the God came embodied and suffered the suffering that that person had suffered for their sins. And they need that being to come back and fight the devil because their ability to fall for the temptations equal to their knowledge of being saved is the question. It's ridiculous. And your purpose uh, in writing the book is to show us how we can all live more fulfilling and less fearful lives. And the word fear, as you said, the fear is spread by, and I, again, I don't mean to offend... Religions, institutions... I don't mean to offend anybody who's religious, but it's religion, it's government, it's politics, it's the media, it's everywhere. How, how can we live a life without fear? How do we untap ourselves from that cycle? Well, what you do is be that you realize who you are. You're a part... Listen, think of how funny this is. This is really funny. Let's say there's a divine intelligence 
okay? Not some guy with a beard, but there's a divine intelligence. And that divine intelligence is looking at the world and realizing that Terra has become, which is a political program. Terra is not physical. It's 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 uh, political and mental. We now are fighting the war on terror, and we're fighting a bunch of people in who've set up a caliphate and is in Syria and in Iraq, two countries that we've been trying to destabilize for since uh, 1998 because they're friends with Iran. We have to destabilize them and destroy their sense of a culture and a country and create lawless bands knowing that the issues of Sunni, Shiite, and Wahhalis, this 1,000-year-old war, 1,400-year-old war. Yeah, so if you destroy the boundaries of a nation and you're focused on uh, ISIL and that they're operating within a territory, what is called Syria or Iraq, and then you have the right, based on you being threatened, to go into those countries and to defeat that enemy. Well, what are you doing? You're going to destroy. Uh, you're going to destroy the the country of Syria and depose the Assad, whoever he is, and depose him and create these same kind of tribal warfares without a true country boundary. The next thing you do is you disband the army, the same thing we did in Iraq. So it has no national identity of security. These are all perpetrated plans. I mean, every time you see ISIL on the news, they're driving American vehicles. That's right. Their weapons are American. Their tanks are American. Their we- the uh, grenade launchers, they're American. Where did they get them? How come we were giving them weapons in Syria a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and all of a sudden now we're bombing them in Iraq? Well, it's very easy to see when you look at it from a geopolitical point of view. It would have to be about oil, Mel. It'd have to be about oil and who controls the oil growth, India, China, Russia. I mean, the power moves east. Well, these oil kingdoms... All of this bombing, and we're going to arm the the moderates in Syria. That's just all crazy. We're created, every one of those. We're the creator. Why do you think Benghazi, all that crap about Benghazi? Anyone who knows anything about that kind of operation knows that we were arming them. Except that as we were arming them to overthrow Assad, we realized that there were these radical groups that are far more radical than than uh, than we had predetermined to be Al Qaeda, and they're just the the repressed kids. They're people who have been repressed using the Palestinian-Israeli issue and the dictatorship supported by Western consciousness in Western countries because we needed the oil and we needed the country tamped down and under control. Well, now we don't need stabilized governments and countries. We don't need that because what we need is to create another Libya. Is Libya, they're killing each other, taking over the embassies, doing everything that they could possibly do in Libya, which is what will happen in Syria, which is what happened in, in Iraq, which is what they hope will happen in Iran. But has Libya quit shipping oil? No. That's right. 
That's right. And that's exactly what happened in Africa hundreds of years ago. Tribes were divided by rivers and they lived in harmony. But then the Europeans came along and changed that. And that's when wars and tribalisms began again. Yeah, well, here we are. We're we're right at if I, if I and I don't mean to get away from sure. people that people don't die, but historically, I mean, and uh, when you've been through what I've been through, Mel, then you educate yourself because I realized I was a fool and a pawn, and I I was really good at what I did. I was really good at it, but it was hollow. So when you start to look at it, we are like in pre-World War One. We just replaced the Ottoman Empire with the rise of of these names that we give. ISIL became ISIS because ISIL was harder to say. Now in the news, it's ISIS. You know, and ISIS is one of the original Egyptian gods. And here we go again. We're at World War One. But I wrote about all of this in uh, Saved by the Light, a book we published 20 years ago. And it all came, all of this came, Mel, from me explaining to Raymond and talking to the early groups of people. Not that would make me famous or any of it, but just my near-death experience. And here these prophecies have come true. And I want to hear this stuff is coming. I true. don't want to discuss those prophecies because a lot of them, including, you know, nano technology being implanted on the populace for good or for bad. We'll discuss that later. But let me go back for a moment about the life review. You went through a life review. You, you briefly mentioned it. Can you three, of, three them. of them? Can you describe how your life was reviewed by whom, what you saw, what you learned, and did you see your future? Well. Everybody has probable possibilities, okay? And what I saw, which you have to remember, once you get through the, uh, you get through being met and your relatives, you, you're you not you anymore. You're not male. You're a devout, powerful, mighty spiritual being with dignity, direction, and purpose. You take the coat off of the body, and you have who you are under it or without it. And you're a conscious spiritual being. You're not petty or childish or whiny or any of that. Because when I had to look at my life review, I didn't look at it from the looking for to be defensive or to try to rationalize like we always try to do for what we did or blame someone else. I didn't do any of that, Mel. I had to face it had to look at it with its deepened integrity, and it wasn't that something was making me do it. It was what was required. It is what you do. You're a great, powerful, and mighty spiritual being with dignity, direction, and purpose. You were chosen to come to this world, and you chose to come to this world. Okay? And the divine believes that there is no one greater than you as a spiritual being to be born and to be here at that point, that place in that social, psychological nature and 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 time frame to do the job that best benefits the divine. You know, people say, Well wonder what God wants me to do, what am I what's the meaning and the purpose of life? Meaning purpose of life is to be you and to react in situations consciously and to make thoughts and, and and actions that benefit the identity of who you truly are in the eyes of the divine. And then you chose to come because there's things you want to grow. I always narrow it down 
mail to you either teaching something or you're learning something. Because if you, those are not the absolute categories. But if I said, okay, what am I learning from this? Then I see it differently. What am I teaching? Then I see it differently. And I can narrow things down to those two places to get a grip on it. Especially if it's something that makes me mad. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Now, how do you feel roaming around the spirit world? I think it's exciting. I don't have any problems about it. I mean, I, I don't have a problem entering that level. And most of my friends are over there. So, you know, when when that time comes or the phases that are necessary that I can I can shift into that world, I have no problems doing it. Because, you know, I'm either learning something or I'm teaching something. And to, to roam in the spiritual world is the gift that we get back. But people have to understand, to live in this density, in this atmosphere, to live here, and to be separate completely consciously from uh, from what is really reality, and to be able to be all things that you can possibly think of, good, bad, ugly, sinner, whatever you want to be, saint, whatever you want to be, and you have the right to do it every day. What a privilege that is. Every day is a blessing. And every day when people don't stop to think this, that this life is hell and they're being tortured and tormented, that's the stupidest stuff in the world. You choose to do the being where you are because this is the situation you chose to learn something or to teach something. And I, I, when I narrowed down being struck by lightning, open heart surgery, brain surgery, a massive heart attack, and heart surgery. Okay, and then in the heart surgery, I didn't have a near-death experience. Then I had surgery on my hand, no near-death experience. I was unconscious. I came too groggy. But in three of the five surgeries, I had this experience. And then I compare it and study other people's. Because the funny part is this. Whose fault is it that we come back? It's science's fault. A near-death experience has come because we understand chemistry, The scientific world and the pharmaceutical world understands the neurological chemical compounds and reactions. In 1975, if you didn't have oxygen to your brain for five minutes, you were considered brain dead. Okay, today they're resuscitating people up to three hours. Okay, second. Now, old people are living longer in some horrendous conditions because they understand chemistry. They bring us back because they understand how the body works and that the opportunity is not shut off because of that. And some of us get second and third chances. And now this this scientific event called the near-death experience once it's applied to the spiritual concepts of how many people see religious events that happen within it, that will become a power to be dealt with. Science cannot accept the fact that it's their fault we keep coming back. They are doing such a good job as uh, as doctors and plumbers that we are returning to tell a very spiritual story about the true identity, essence, and origin of who we are 
as spiritual beings in human form. How did you not get... Uh, that's pretty amazing. It is. How did you not get permanent brain damage after being brain dead for so long? Well, did I ever say that I hadn't, wasn't permanently brain damaged? If you listen to me talk, the first conclusion you would have to come to was that was permanently brain damaged. But I don't understand all of that. I've studied the neurochemical peptide bonds and how oxygen can be stored. But there is a, a fundamental nature about electrical. The body is now, we know, based on quantum mechanics, the body is completely electrical. And when you run enough electricity through an electrical system that can weld nails, you know, I was the tip that welded those nails, then who the hell knows, Mel? Who knows what once you electrify, because I'm a kidney, my heart, my nerves, it was like somebody pouring acid over me. I was burning and on fire from the inside out. This stayed with me for months in varying degrees. And I would spend hours sitting in a chair, but it took me an hour to get to the chair. Mm. And I would sit there and I would go through these levels, these pain, these worlds where my back and uh, these headaches, my God, and uh, blurred vision. And then I would enter these dimensions. And you would think that it was hallucination. But I wouldn't take pain medicines. I wouldn't take the drugs because I didn't know where I was. I didn't have any idea. I couldn't tell anybody about it because I was having enough problems walking. And uh, how many times I'd have to change my pants in a day because I couldn't get to the bathroom to pee. It was too far to take the 9 or 10 or 12 steps. I mean, that's the world I lived in for the next two years. You know, and then Raymond came, and it was like a savior, because Raymond asked the right questions. I mean, he knew what he was doing, and then I began to meet people like me, I, uh, Andy and Vi, and just normal, everyday people. You know, nobody was famous. Now every famous person in the world had a near-death experience. It's ridiculous, but these were just people who worked every day and raised kids and had jobs. One guy... He got struck by um, a 13,000-volt, 500-amp uh, electrical line, and it blew two legs off and one arm off. And he had two near-death experiences. No one ever really questioned Andy, because if you put him on camera and you saw what he, what, what he had gone through, there's nowhere you could go emotionally to not believe his story about having a near-death experience. And it was pretty cosmic, Mel. I mean, it was similar to what I had gone through, but it was pretty cosmic about where he went and the things that he saw and uh, the description. But it took him, he spent years, and he only probably lived maybe three and a half years after that. Because it was just too much. The pain was too much, emotionally, psychologically, and physical. Who, who? So when you see these people, who or what decides if and when you come back? Okay, um, it certainly wasn't me, because if I had a choice of being over there or over here, you can forget about it. I'm staying over there, but there comes a point in it. 
where you chose to come and you were chosen to come. And that force that in that believes in in what I call divinity, you know, the good, seeking the good in all things. That force makes you aware that you have something to do. Okay, and a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people. It was about their children. You know, it's about I have to get them to a certain stage and age, and you know. My husband can't find the clicker for the TV. And <laughs> just those kinds of. I'm sorry, but it's beautiful. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm thinking about that. The, the worry of a wife thinking, you know, my husband he doesn't know where I left the, the the clicker. I mean, humor is such an important aspect. I don't mean to laugh, but that is the part that would worry no, me. But Mel, but but Mel, remember, look, I'm funny. Okay, what are you going to do? Kill me? Well, big deal. Who do you, th- you think you think you're going to put me in some pain? No, and I appreciate that. I mean, give yeah, give me a break, everybody. It's just the tone and the level of where you are and how you are exploring this is where I go. I mean, I have a very lighthearted viewpoint of all this, but from talking to thousands of people who've had these experiences, and I would say 700 good ones, because I categorize them. Because a lot of people are lying. This is a lie. They took some uh, ayahuasca, or you know, it was kind of like something that happened that they heard when they were ten years old. You listen to all that—that's nothing. I mean, it's just that they need that attention, or they had an experience, and they need someone to pay attention because that experience enhances who they're projecting themselves to be in this particular society and this particular reality. Oh, I had a near-death experience, and I became this. Well, when? I mean, you can't believe everything that you hear, but basically, everything to me is funny. I, I, I my wife cat gets on to me all the time because she says I measure everything by its entertainment value. How entertaining is it? Not whether it's frightening to me or whether it threatens me or whether it, I that is how entertaining it is. Because when you look at entertainment. You find a way to see yourself and what your likes and dislikes and kinks and all those things are so that you can iron them out. But for me, most people care about everybody else. I mean, moms come back for kids and husbands come back for wives and children. And, you know, they come back and sometimes the burden of of what it was the burden of taking care of them. They did not calculate that when they came back, and it creates an emotional stress in the in the survivor and also what it does to the family. But it's if they were sent back, then if this was necessary. Well, there are people who voluntarily engage in, say, out-of-body experiences or astral travel. Basically, they're disconnecting themselves from their physical body. Is it the same environment when you have a near-death experience? Well, in the first part, the out-of-body experience, which I always call the blue-gray place, <clears throat> it's the place where you're aware of the world you left and you're not quite acclimated to the world that you're going to because you're like floating above and watching it from above and, you know, we hear these standard concepts. And so, yes, that's an out-of-body experience. But, Mel, every time you go to sleep, you have that. I mean, you. if you look at quantum physics, quantum physics says that in the multi-universe theory, which is applied dimensional reality, and they can measure that, you know, there's not. this is not a theory anymore. The multi-universe 
theory is not a theory, it's a reality because of electron and proton bombardment. You can take a, uh, a uh, an electron, you can add a radioactive isotope tachyon to it, and you can bombard it in a chamber, and it will leave this dimension. And then when you reduce the bombardment, it will come back into this dimension, and you know it's the same electron because you put the isotope tachyon to it, and you can measure the the radiation from the isotope to it as the identifier. So it's if the multi-universe theory, which is now true, you live between in 11 to 17 simultaneous realities in this life. So when I heard that, the first thing I thought was, was no wonder I'm so tired when I wake up in the morning. Because if I'm having half as much fun in those worlds as I'm having in this world, I deserve to be tired. You know, well, we can't hear beyond the infrasound or ultrasound. We can't see ultra, you know, beyond ultraviolet or infrared. But that doesn't mean that there's not, it's not exactly. There. So could this same be here? I mean, we're not vibrating on a certain frequency, and that's why we cannot, you know, with our physical bodies that are vibrating at a cert- certain frequency, that's why we cannot engage or interact with uh, beings from, can I even call it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, can I even call it interdimensionally? Yeah, absolutely. And do I believe that there's interdimensional realities? Yeah. <laughs> in, this, in the second, uh, not so much in the first uh, near death, but in the second uh, experience, uh, doing open heart surgery, I had no question. I became aware of interdimensional realities, Mel, when I would sit in that chair for all day, because there was nothing else I could do. And I couldn't lie in the bed. I just couldn't. So I'd roll off on the floor, and I would crawl, and it would take me an hour to get up in this chair. And I had a string hooked, a little rope my brother hooked, because it was a rocking chair. And I could create movement. You know, I could create movement, and when I could create movement back and forth, like in this gliding rocker, then I could work muscles because I was learning, trying to teach myself to walk and teach myself to eat. You know, I I don't eat with a spoon and I never very pick up a spoon because I couldn't eat with a fork because I'd stab myself in the face. You know, I mean, I, I came through two years of this stuff. Here's a, here I am a big, brave guy, right? I got my girlfriend. We're going out. We're going to this Chinese restaurant we used to go to all the time. And I'm on my big adventure going out, <laughs> and uh, we get out walking with two, I had two canes and welders glasses on, and I lost 55 pounds, so I'm around 140, 145, maybe 150 pounds from my normal 225, now I'm right around 235, so I'm 10 or 15 pounds over my graduated high school at 215. So uh, we sit down. I put the I put the walker's sticks down. They bring the egg drop soup and I fall over in it face first and then hit the floor. That's the life I had while I was moving through multi-dimensional realities. 
I would go to these places. Sometimes it was like I would pass through this reality to go to wherever it was they were taking me. And people say, well, who's they? Well, I don't know who they was because I was paying more attention to where I was going than who was taking me there. You know, because ever what it was, it was either hallucination from the electrical damage done to my body or it was really happening. Well, I concluded that 99% of the time it was really happening. And I would say 95, but uh, that was just me, you know, when I'm trying to overthink it. It would, I would travel through these dimensions. So do I believe the multi-universe theory and do I believe that we're frequencies? It's the same as what you just said, Mel. This is science, everybody. This is not 1225 uh, ACE. This is 2014, and science says you function at a certain harmony and a certain series of frequencies, and uh, insulin is in the key of C, and your body is like a, a orchestra. And it functions in a certain range, the same as your hearing. If every, if you knew everything, then why can't you hear what a dog can hear, which is 40 times more acute than what you hear? And you cannot hear in that range. And we know that an animal can do that. And that an animal has instincts that it can correlate and operate in and understanding. And think about this. When the tsunami hit Thailand... Killed 220,000 people. How many animals did it kill? Only those in cages or chained. The rest of them had went up into had gone up in the mountains earlier that day. And you have tigers and chickens and birds and lions and foxes and rats and nothing was bothering anything. Wait a second, uh, Daniel, because you mentioned something very interesting about the the Sumatran tsunami. There was a tribe there that didn't lose, well, actually, they lost one person. They lost a paraplegic person who could not summon help. But everybody in the tribe climbed a mountain more than 24, 48 hours before the event happened. So we lose, as human beings, that we lose that ability that animals have, that instinct, to sense danger before it happens because of civilization. No, I, because of civilization. Okay, I, but I can explain that. I don't have a problem about it, Mel, because, see, you're smart, Mel. You're smart, and I appreciate your show, and I appreciate you trying to explore where people get a grip on their true spiritual reality. But there probably was a folklore, some folklore mythology that that tribe understood that had been passed down that when they saw the rats leaving the house heading up right. the hill and all of a sudden they look out the window and there's a fox and a chicken walking side by side and nobody's eating the other one and they're heading up the hill well it's time for us to head up the hill you know and everybody listens and remembers that folklore because you have 10,000 years of history in Thailand and you listen to that folklore and you head up there I mean it's just the arrogance of the uh, civilization and the lack of communal nature that we lose that perspective. Because think of the what is the best thing and the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity? Alternating current. Because you lose the rhythm of the earth. 
and you have a time frame of the 24 hours broken down based on that the world is spinning a thousand miles an hour. The world is spinning at a thousand miles an hour right now as we're having this conversation. And there's not a single thing that anybody can do or say about that because that's absolute proven science. And it takes 24 hours at a thousand miles an hour to go to circumference. The circum uh, the circumference of the Earth is 25,000 miles, and you can break it down into variations to the 24 hours, a little more than an hour. And realizing that that's happening, then we live in a field a current field volt current. We live in a field of energy that electronics surrounded us. We lose our ability uh, uh, to tune to nature unless we're trail hikers or golfers or people who rock climb. And we lose those senses. I mean, and it's very natural. It's very natural. It's that people don't apply now their everyday life to their spiritual identity. They don't apply the fact that they are spiritual beings and they are electrical. You know, and here's something else that's really funny. Weather, atmosphere, stratosphere, ionosphere, how we have our weather. A weather is electrical. It happens electrically. And when you look at the patents on HARP, and you look at the patents from 1964 on weather modification, go to the patent office and look up patent applications on weather modification, 1964. It's about electricity. And when you stop to think about that, you either move into a mentality of seeing yourself as a spiritual being and reacting that way, and you use things like the near-death experience as your support system, and then you study your faith, which you have faith in, based on that it's acceptable or politically uh, or socially uh, astute. But that doesn't stop you from really seeing who you are. And when you have one of these experiences, you don't have a choice about it now. I can't, that I'm a great, powerful, and mighty spiritual being with dignity, direction, and purpose is not hard for me to have to handle because I've seen how I came to that conclusion. And in that conclusion, certain responsibilities come that I have no way to rationalize, and so I don't try to. Well, hold it right there because we I, I hate to interrupt you, but we have to we exceed it a little bit on the first segment. We have to separate both. We have to take a one and only intermission, but when we come back... I want to discuss your visions. This is a very incredible part of the of the of the story because one of your visions depicted, and this is many many years ago before we even talked about Amero, before we talked about the American Union. You in your vision depicted American military troops lining the U.S. Mexican border, and if we look at the news they're, lately, they're doing that today. Exactly, and you wrote this book in 2009, but the visions were much earlier. You also saw the ultimate declaration. I wrote this in I wrote this in 1994, but the visions came from 1975. All of this happened in 1975. You also saw the ultimate declaration of the Republic of North America, uniting Canada, the United States, and Mexico as one country, and so much more. And also nanochip implants that can be used for good or for bad if you have some you know 
a group that you need to get rid of. That's uh, euthanasia right there, long distance. All of this in 1975. But I want to discuss all of this when we come back. Daniel, how can people buy all your books and learn more about your history, your research, your story? Amazon books are go to Daniel, D-A-N-N-I-O-N, and see what's happening. Or go on Amazon, but go to Daniel. Danian.com, which is linked on our website. Folks, don't go anywhere. I'm here with my special guest, who I wanted to have on the show many years ago, and I'm glad that we finally got it done, Danian Brinkley. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission. Listen to some music, and we'll be right back. Enjoy. <laughs> 